Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. In this episode, we're talking about Incident 40. That's correct, Incident 40. Now, this article comes to us from thedebrief.org. TheDebrief.org, written by Jazz Shaw, dated March 25th, 2022. Right on the top of the article here, it has a picture of a UFO that was taken back then. Pretty intriguing, actually. The title says, Long before the Phoenix Lights, there was Incident 40. And it says, Including photos of an alleged UFO and perhaps one of the first appearances of the Men in Black. When people interested in the UFO topic hear the name of the city of Phoenix, Arizona, most will immediately think of the famous Phoenix Lights incident of 1997. But it turns out that Phoenix has been the host of numerous incidents of sightings and anomalous unidentified objects in our skies for quite some time. In fact, such reports date back to the earliest days of what is considered to be the modern history of ufology, and the United States government has taken considerable interest in many of them. One of these sightings was reported on the same day that the infamous Roswell crash took place, though it attracted far less attention in the media, but the event drew lengthy scrutiny from the U.S. Air Force over the course of an investigation that would last for several years. Now, of course... You know, Roswell, this has been so many years ago, long before the internet or really even mass communication through uh, what we think of as modern television. It's easy to understand how this incident could have been overlooked, but seemingly it has in a lot of respects. It says the event in question took place in Phoenix, Arizona in the late afternoon of July 7th, 1947. William A. Rhodes, a professional musician and amateur photographer, radio operator and electronics technology enthusiast was leaving his home to go to his workshop which he had constructed in his backyard when he heard a curious noise coming from the west according to the witness from his <clears throat> according to witness from his yard he saw something in that direction but quickly noticed an unusual sight to the northeast he described it as an elliptical flat gray object measuring 20 to 30 feet across traveling at 400 to 600 miles per hour spiraling downward from approximately 5,000 feet in an altitude to 2,000 feet Rhodes quickly ran into his workshop and grabbed his Kodak Brownie 120 box camera returning outside he captured one picture of the object as it approached its lowest trajectory and another after it ended its spiraling descent and began to rapidly accelerate upward at a 45-degree angle. Now think of this. I mean, that would be amazing to say to see today, but 1947, okay? 600 mile an hour. Uh, you know, we're talking about something that could break the sound barrier almost. This would be an incredibly fast object. To just fall straight out of the sky like that at this super high rate of speed, stop, and then accelerate off at a 45 degree angle. There's not any imaginable man-made object that could do that even today, 
let alone back in 1947. It goes on, it says, After the object disappeared into the sky, Rhodes wasted little time in sharing his experience with the Arizona Republic newspaper. They ran, an, <clears throat> they ran an article on their front page the following day, including the two photographs that the witness had taken, and quite a bit of excitement ensued. What William Rhodes didn't know at the time was that the federal government was also aware of the story almost immediately and had taken a keen interest in his account. What followed was an investigation spanning more than five years and a personal journey for Rhodes that was not always positive in nature. His story would go on to become part of Project Grudge. Isn't that just an awesome name? Project Grudge kind of tells you where the heart at was at in this whole situation, doesn't it? Identified simply as Incident 40 and later Project Blue Book, and his story may have featured one of the earliest recorded appearances of the individuals referred to in UF mythology as the Men in Black. Well, maybe the Men in Black or the Men in Green, huh? goes on and says, Rhodes would go on to provide interviews to multiple newspapers and magazines in the coming weeks. Many media outlets of the time were highly interested in the flying saucer topic because only two weeks earlier, the world had learned of the Kenneth Arnold's infamous report of multiple enigmatic craft sighted near Mount Rainier in Washington State. The press incorrectly reported Arnold's description of the craft as flying saucers, but the name stuck. It's worth noting that Mr. Rhodes' photograph eerily matched the actual description that Arnold gave of the craft that he observed, a fact that would be noted later in the Project Grudge investigation. Rhodes' sighting also may be pushed off to the front of pages quickly because by some cosmic coincidence, if that's what it was, it took place on the same day that a newspaper in Roswell, New Mexico, reported the famous recovery of a flying disc. That eventually became the benchmark for all UFO reports of that era. Imagine that. So you had uh, the wrote, you had the uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting of the multiple UFOs, and actually what he described was this convex craft, dude, the convex wing skipping across the sky like a flying saucer skipping across water, I believe is how he described it. So you had that mass UFO sighting by Kenneth Arnold. Then, a couple of weeks later, you have this sighting by Mr. Rhodes of a very similar craft, this time not skipping across water, but just diving out of the sky like a falcon, 600 mile an hour though, and then coming to a complete stop mid-air and jetting back up at a 45 degree angle at a high rate of speed. Then we have this third sighting, well, reported crash at Roswell. So this swarm of UFO activity. You have to wonder, was this some sort of um, flotilla of UFOs traveling through space that happened to make a pit stop here on Earth? And with the crash at Roswell, uh, you had this activity surrounding it before, during, and after? Strange indeed. As William Rhodes took his story to the world, what he was unaware of was that military and government officials were aware of it and were looking into his report almost immediately. Within 24 hours of the incident being reported in the Arizona Republic on July 8, 1947, the newspaper had been contacted by officials from the Air Force requesting copies of the two photos he had provided. The newspaper complied in, with the request 
This was all documented in records of the Project Blue Book investigation, which are preserved at the National Archives catalog today. It is also worth noting that William Rhodes' name is redacted in all of the documents we shall link to and provide here, except in one instance where the name Rhodes was left intact. But publicly available media records leave no doubt that this was the case being investigated, and his identity was never made a secret in his public interviews and appearances. The article goes on and says, While the attention of the world may have quickly shifted away to other stories of potentially unearthly phenomena, the attention of the government did not <clears throat> did the attention of the government did not. Inquiries were made through a number of Air Force and Federal Intelligence Agency offices in road sighting. This information was all being directed to several offices, including the Air Force Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, coordinating with other federal agencies. And then in an interview with Mr. Rose himself was finally arranged to be held in late August of 1947, less than a month after the sighting took place. What happened next may have fed into a variety of long-standing theories about how the United States federal government handled questions regarding the sightings of UFOs. What you see here, clear back in 1947, was a pattern that has been long since followed by the United States government and other governments as well, and that is uh, to try a pattern of containment. Contain the witnesses, contain the sightings, uh, debunk as much of uh, the reports as possible, keep it quiet, keep it under wraps, control the narrative. And we see it starting clear back in 1947 before they uh, had managed to uh, develop far more advanced uh, psychological, uh, well, I guess for lack of a better term, weapons. Before the government had really learned how to control narratives, clear back in 1947, they're showing you how they began that fir those first steps of containing these UFO reports. It says, on August 29, 1947, an interview with William Rhodes was arranged. He was spoken to by Special Agent George Fugate, Jr. from Counterintelligence Corps, CIC, and Special Agent Brower, no first name given, of the FBI. Curiously, while Special Agent Fugate later revealed his identity, the agents initially were only introduced as representatives of the United States government. In later interviews, Special Agent Brower would state that he found the suppression of his full identity to be, to be a peculiar procedure, but it was none of his business, and he continued with the interview. Rhodes was asked for his original photos of the craft and the negatives from his camera. He gave the photographs up, but informed the agents that the negatives were not at his home, but he would give them to them the next day, which he did. He was also informed that it was unlikely that he would have his photos and negatives returned to him. There you go. Contain it. Contain the witness report. Contain the evidence. In this case, the photographs. Contain it. They want to build, they want to build a wall around it. it. goes on and says, This is a peculiar part of the record. The few available images of FBI agents in the 1950s indicate they would typically show up for assignments wearing a stereotypical male black business suit and dress shoes. Hats or dark glasses were obviously optional. In the modern era, 
when law enforcement officials at any level, at any level visit citizens, it is standard procedure to produce valid identification, including the agency they work for and the reason for their visit. This was not the case with Special Agent Brower in 1947, and the information doesn't come to us from some UFO conspiracy outlet. The information is documented in archived government reports. The reader may well question whether this was some unique approach suggested by Fugate or if this was a standard approach in UFO investigations. In the latter, perhaps Special, Brower, Special Agent Brower was unwittingly recruited as one of the first documented men in black, anonymous men in official-looking attire claiming to be from the government, asking a witness to surrender evidence to them, clearly fits the mold of the, of the entire men in black legend. But William Rhodes would turn out to be unhappy with the seizure of his evidence, leading to complications in the ensuing investigation. While the investigation by various elements in the United States Military and Intelligence Agency began literally the day after William Rhodes took photos of something unusual in the skies near his home, it stretched on for a period of several years. Even before Rhodes was interviewed in late August of 1947, Inquiries were being made about the photos he submitted. Some of these investigations were indeed technical in nature, looking into the validity of the images, the weather conditions at the time, and other data that might substantiate or invalidate the claims of the witnesses. Well, you see, Mr. Rhodes wasn't hiding this. I mean, he published that picture in his local newspaper. And these agents would most likely have known, it would seem reasonable to believe, that that picture, that UFO, that actual photograph looked an awful lot like what Kenneth Arnold had described seeing. The article continues, But at the same time that investigators were checking into the possibility of flying disc being seen over Phoenix, they were looking even more deeply into William Rhodes himself. The investigative records that were later assembled as part of Project Grudge clearly showed that the government was looking into virtually every aspect of Rhodes' life to determine the nature of his character and how patriotic of a citizen he was. This goes to show you the inclination of the deep state even back then. They come across a phenomena that they cannot explain that is likely out of their control. So the solution for these small-minded people Instead of looking at this thing and saying, wow, we don't understand what this could possibly be, they try to fit a square peg in a round hole. They automatically assume it must be the Russians that have this aircraft with these convex wings that can fly straight down out of the sky at 600 miles an hour, come to a complete stop in midair, and then rocket back off at a 45 degree angle, again at speeds of four, five, 600 miles an hour as implausible as that was. They took this implausible explanation and then they used that as a template to question this poor man's patriotism. This shows you the danger of this closed-in, boxed-in thinking, this we-are-the-science thinking. It's never science not to question. It's never... It's never open-mindedness not to look at one of these UFO situations and say, well, we just don't know. They're doing the same thing today. Somebody reports a UFO. Now, they don't necessarily question their patriotism so much as to say, well, this poor man is not mentally competent. 
clearly what he's seen is a drone dropping out of the sky at 600 mile an hour, stopping mid-air, darting upwards three, four, five hundred mile an hour. Clearly this man is a conspiracy theorist. It says if these people in these positions of control, these positions of authority, are unwilling and unable to admit that there is some phenomena, something out there that is beyond their control. And this creates some sort of almost dangerous disgustness in their mind. It just drives them crazy to the point where they have to create this straw man argument. It's a Russian fighter jet. It's a drone. It's swamp gas, whatever. And then, like I said, they just take that whole template and they force it over the top of the witness. They drive that square peg into a round hole, pounding, pounding, pounding. It goes on and says, but at the same time, the investigators were checking into the possibility of flying disc being seen over Phoenix. They were looking even more deeply into William Rhodes himself. The investigator, the investigative records that were later assembled as part of the Project Grudge clearly showed that the government was looking into virtually every aspect of Rhodes' life to determine the natures of his character and how patriotic of a citizen he was. Note to self, if you're being investigated by a government agency under the umbrella project that's named Project Grudge, you might want to get a lawyer goes on and says, Multiple reports showed that the government had requested a full record of Rhodes' credit history, as well as his personal history with his neighbors being interviewed to determine what sort of person he was. One early report stated that there were other undesirable aspects to this case. The observer's character and business affiliations are presently under investigation. And subsequent reports show that the investigation took a great deal of interest into many aspects of Rhodes' life that had nothing to do with the unidentified aerial phenomena. Those investigations resulted in reports that delved into very private matters. One report recorded that his mother was a Russian immigrant, with suggestions that the family's loyalties might lie elsewhere. It was noted that he was a musician and that his wife was the only source of income for the family. The report claimed that Rhodes, that Rhodes was not religious and is not and is a registered Democrat. <laughs> Along with the fact that he did not vote in the last election, all of this was recorded despite the fact that interviews with his neighbors recorded him as being an excellent neighbor who devotes considerable time to community projects. It goes on and says, The final reports from the investigation were conflicting in many regards. Some investigators found the sighting highly, com- highly compelling, while others wrote it off immediately, wrote it off entirely. But it was clear that there were questions being raised about roads from the beginning. One report, in particular, highlighted the divided nature of opinions into both the photographic evidence and the credibility of the witness. On the first page of the report, investigators concluded that no astronomical explanation, astronomical explanation seems possible for the unusual object cited in this incident. It goes on to say, quote, This case is especially important because of the photographic evidence and because of the similarity of these, ob- of these photographs to the drawing by 
redacted in an incident in Incident 17. Incident 17 was the Kenneth Arnold sighting. So obviously, the investigators saw the similarities between the craft that was photographed, physical proof, and the eyewitness report from Kenneth Arnold. But rather than just taking that information and trying to investigate what they had in front of them, it seems like they were on a journey to destroy the credibility of the witness at all costs. And the report goes on to marvel that these two best-attested, entirely independent cases should agree so closely concerning the shape of the object and its maneuverability. The, site further, the report further describes Incident 40 as one of the most crucial in the history of these objects and recommends a continued investigation and the gathering of more evidence. And then it has a little bit of a the, this uh, a synopsis of the article uh, describing what happened with Cantonal N47. It goes on and says, but on page two of the very same report, a caveat, a caveat is added in a complete about-face. It cautions that there remains a strong possibility that the entire incident is spurious and the investigation of and the and the invention of an excitable mind. This strengthens the need for reinvestigation. If spurious, this fact should be highlighted and even publicized to quash enthusiasm for the irresponsible reporting of saucers and like objects. These patterns of alternating support for the credibility of road sighting and the possibility that it was entirely a hoax continue throughout the documents. You know, you almost have to wonder if you have two, <clears throat> two type of people working on this investigation. You can imagine... One group of agents is truly interested, trying to do their job, trying to perform an investigation to the best of their duties. And then you got these other guys, maybe they're not believers, maybe they're skeptics. I don't know, maybe some of them even went on to work for the History Channel, who knows. But maybe part of the problem is is that they just don't like getting up, of, getting up out of their chair and going out into the field and doing work. It's probably a lot easier just to sit there in the office behind a desk than to actually have to go out and investigate a flying saucer report. goes on and says, But one person who seemed to come down on the side of lending credibility to the incident 40 was J. Allen Heine. In his analysis, the reports listed in Project Grudge, he broke down all of the sightings into three categories with multiple subcategories for each. Category 1 covered astronomical phenomena such as meteor stars, planets related naturally occurring lights in the sky. Category 2 was described as non-astronomical but suggestive and other explanations. These included objects such as balloons, conventional aircraft, rockets, flares, blinds, or other mundane things that are regularly observed. Category 3 was reserved for events characterized as being non-astronomical with no explanation evident. He brought this category down into subsection 3A, which was written off as having a lack of evidence precluding explanation. Category 3B was identified as evidence offered suggests no explanation. Incident 40 is listed as category 3B. So in other words, hey, we saw something, we just don't know what it is. That right there is a rational response to that situation goes on and says, one of the great bones of contention in the entire Incident 40 case was what became of the photos and the negatives from William Rhodes' camera after the initial investigation in 1947. 
Somebody might ask Tom DeLong if he has these. I don't know, just a thought. By 1952, the Air Force somehow discovered that Rhodes had been in contact with a magazine that published an account of his story and had been asking about the possibility of suing the government to have the negatives returned. Well, what do you know? Even back in 1947, the federal government had snitches on the inside of mainline media that were reporting back to them. <laughs> wow, I don't see a pattern here, do you? This seems to have caused some consternation among government officials who had been studying the sighting, leading the Air Force Director of Intelligence at Wright-Patterson to report that they did not have the negatives, but if they were found, they should be returned to Rhodes with apologies in order to avoid press excitement. Wow, so this guy is talking to uh, an author or somebody at a, at a magazine, and he says, well, maybe we could sue the government to get these pictures back. And someone at that magazine, probably the guy he was talking to, I would think, or maybe someone this guy he talked to talked to, felt compelled to call the U.S. government and say, oh, hey, this guy's thinking about suing you. I don't know. Whatever happened to uh, confidentiality between a press person and their sources? The article continues here, and we'll finish up. It says, this led the Air Force Office of Intelligence, AFOIN, to send a letter to Captain Edward J. Ruppelt of Project Blue Book fame, asking for the negatives to be returned to us soonest. <laughs> Rupert was assured that if the negatives were returned, copies would be made for his records. Rupert quickly responded, saying that his office did not have the negatives. He also went further, advising that he wasn't even sure if Rhodes had ever sent the negatives to the government, saying that his office had concluded that the photos were probably not authentic. He then went on to suggest that Rhodes was attempting to get that Rose was attempting to get on the, quote, the picture-selling bandwagon. And if the government confirmed that they had been in possession of the negatives, it could lead to a touchy situation. Really? Would that touchy situation be that maybe a lot of people in the country would start to come to realize that there was something out there that maybe these folks that work in government weren't the end-all, be-all. They didn't own the science. Maybe everything wasn't settled. Would that disrupt the narrative? Would that become a touchy situation if you could not control the narrative 100% to make sure that all the sheep followed every time you told them to follow? Possibly. I don't know. Just a thought. And we'll finish up here. It says, These questions about the providence and position of the negatives are not, are not borne out by government records. However, a routing and record sheet shows that the negatives were in the possession of the Technical Projects Office of the Air Materials Command at Wright-Patterson on February 19, 1948. The other records in the archive demonstrate that the negatives had been examined and analyzed by a variety of experts to determine the equipment used to take the picture, the type of film used, and the potential veracity of the images. While it may be possible that Rupert's office had somehow lost the negatives by the time the investigation was reaching its conclusion, it remains well documented that the negatives traveled back and forth between Wright-Patterson and other offices for some time. And maybe... In 1947 and 48, just like today, when people put in a request to get a particular document or picture that we're not supposed to see, 
Sometimes they just say, yeah, something happened to it. We don't have it. Even back then, something happened to it. We don't have it. Conclusion says, William A. Rhodes, 15 minutes of fame, came and went fairly quickly in July and August 1947. That may have been because he reported his sighting and submitted his photographs to the local media only two weeks after the Kenneth Arnold sighting caught the attention of the nation and the world learned of the Roswell incident the day after his report reached the press. But behind the scenes, the government found reason to describe his report as one of the two best attested entirely independent cases of UFO sighting reports. Even J. Allen Hynek found the evidence to be compelling with no obvious alternate explanation. While some inside the government examination sought to describe Rose as a crank, Interviews with his neighbor and family described him as a scientifically-minded fellow who had pursued interest in astronomy, radio and television technology, and photography since an early age. Skeptics may reasonably point to the timing of his sighting as riding on the coattails of the Kenneth Arnold sighting, but the similarities between the two were even acknowledged by Project Blue Book. Also, Rhodes' interest in all of his, this technology far predated the dawn of the modern stories of strange objects in the sky, and his documented experience with what we might today referred to as the Men in Black, certainly provides a reason to ask if this event was something of a hallmark in the history of UFOology. Yeah, hallmark or maybe a trademark. Because, you know, uh, what do you call it, the law of parsimony, maybe Ackman's Razor, usually the simplest Usually the simplest explanation is correct. Well, clearly this man was just out in his yard. He saw this strange spaceship falling out of the sky and doing these maneuvers. He grabbed his camera. He took a picture. That's the simplest explanation. And then, unfortunately, he gave the picture and the only negative to uh, this FBI agent, unnamed agent, and uh, whoever else is with him. And... We know that this evidence made it into the hands of the government because of what was what was found from Wright Air Force Patterson's base. But to this day, they say, well, we don't have it. We don't have it. Anyway, I thought that was really a cool article. Really, really well written. Uh, Incident 40. Uh, you can find that over on uh, debrief.org. Take a look at it. Until next time, this is UFO Warning. Over and out. Thank <music> you.